Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Happy New Year and all that. Another year coming with some fabulous podcasts. This is Moments That Rock with me, your host, Tony Michael Edis. We're part of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts. And thank you for all the support over Christmas. The uh, Led Zeppelin, Henry Smith uh, podcast went down phenomenally well. We also had stuff from The Edge of You 2 and Lisa Francesca Nan with some great stories about when she worked in the entertainment industry and met lots of people like David Bowie. And of course, January is Bowie's month. Without further ado, we will get on with today's podcast. Today's guest is Dylan White, and I'll leave it to him to explain how he got into the business and things that happened and rocked his world along the way. Well, hello. My name is Dylan White, and it's great to be here, Tony, on your podcast, Moments That Rock. So I will deliver some moments that rock my life. Um, let's start at the beginning then. I basically was born in 1958. I grew up in the 60s and I listened to all the sounds of the day. I can remember being on a street corner singing She Loves You by the Beatles. And then what happened in about 67, 68, I had an aunt and uncle come to visit us from America and um, they bought me a transistor radio. And so at the same time that Radio One launched. And that transistor radio did not leave my ear. And for some reason, the music started to do something for me. And particular records like um, Amen Corner, High in the Sky, John Fred, Playboy Band, Gary Puckett, Small Faces. All these records you heard on the radio. One in particular was Felice Taylor, I Feel Love Coming On, which is a sort of um, supreme sounding record. Very hard to get, actually. I'm not even sure it's now available on Spotify. The Northern Soul record used to get played on on the radio, and I just loved this record. So I was just growing up in that, and we were watching Top of the Pops on the black and white TV. I can clearly remember that Rolling Stones didn't do Top of the Pops, but they had a promotional video for Jumping Jack Flash. Of course, you can now find this on YouTube in colour. And they have face paint on, and they look scary, really scary. And you think, whoa, what are these guys, the Rolling Stones? And then Jeff wrote Tull came on with standing on one leg. But my dad was an amateur classical pianist. And he will hang on a minute, he's playing a flute. That's quite difficult to do. So he was suitably impressed. And as then time went on, so you, I was involved in just, I just liked the radio. Anyway, as we get into the 70s, my first record I bought was It Don't Come Easy by Ringo Starr. 
and so became this involvement with music. Um, the first albums I've got was probably T-Rex, Electric Warrior, and also John Lennon's Imagine. T-Rex came first, followed by Slade. And again, my mum was having a fit at these fellas stomping around. But my dad clocked that Jim Lee played violin. That's skillful. But as we know, all the Slade could play really well. And that was what they crafted. So my first gig, and you'll like this, Tony, was Slade at the Palladium. And I am, in fact, in a documentary by the BBC called It's Slade, talking about that gig. But that's how it started. Slade at the Palladium was mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. So I rang a mate up. I went, let's go to Heathrow Airport and meet Slade. He went, all right. Voila, Slade come through into the arrivals. That was it. I met my heroes. I've got a poster still, signed by them. And there was a snapper there that took a photograph as they left. And that picture turned up in a magazine some months later. And I thought, I've got to learn how to play that guitar. And that was a massive point in my life. So I then got involved with playing more, attempting to write songs and form bands and all the rest of it. So very quickly, between 76 into 77, the Stranglers got from supporting bands on the circuit and playing places like the Croydon Greyhound, etc., to back there at the Roundhouse. And the punk revolution happened, you know, and that was that. Anyway, I had another driver to really attempt to be a successful musician in the early 80s, and I was my most creative period. I wrote a lot of songs and hustle gigs, particularly playing the Rock Garden in Covent Garden. That was a big gig because the Smiths had played there and you too had played there. So doing all these gigs, sending out demo tapes, getting rejection letters from Stiff Records, getting rejection letters from Virgin, the old bloody lot. I was now got involved with these guys and I started fitting off his furniture. Through that, one of the guys had a studio. He said, you can use this studio at a cheap rate if you run my furniture fitting business. So I went, all right, I'll do it. So I acted to the studio, so I started recording more and more music as we went into the 80s. And luck would have it, or so as things befolded before me, uh, a young lad, he was, about, he was 17, I know this for a fact, was working with me, and he was a big music fan, and he wrote songs, he had a band. I thought, well, all right, I'll be a manager then if I can't be a successful musician. And they could use the studio. And we recorded demos, all the rest of it, and off we went. They were called The Plan, and I made them change their name to Well Loaded. And they were playing the Marquee Club in London, the new Marquee Club on Charing Cross Road. And they had quite a good following. So I then had this money from running this furniture fitting business. I said, well, we'll make a record. Didn't know what I was doing. Didn't have a clue. And we made this seven-inch single. And Gary Crowley played it. And I said, well, how do you get other people to play it? You went, you need a plugger. I mean, well, what's that? someone who gets records on the radio said go and see this fella called Gary Blackburn who was at the time doing the beautiful south and the farm and was an established plugger who had worked at Island Records and such like and a company called Anglo-Irish and uh, he then started plugging this band for a fee and he made some progress so we're doing all right right. we've got to get my deal I've got to get my deal you know so we did a second record, 12-inch single. 
paid Gary some money. He gets it on the radio. Funny thing was, to detract attention, I would get either a packet of nuts and put them in with this in a record box with the record and drop it off with A&R man saying, this record is sending me nuts. Or I put in bananas. Go, this record is sending me bananas. Anyway, one Friday, I dropped off a record with the bananas. On the Monday morning, this fella comes in his office and he goes, I smell a stale fruit in it. And he eventually tracks it down to this box. <laughs> well loaded. He rang me up and went, what are you putting in this record here? So I told Gary all this, and he said, Dill, you've got a knack for promotion. Forget the band, be a plugger. I was on a building site off the Strand in February of 91, and Gary rang me up, come to the word, tomorrow night I'm there with the farm. You can start helping me out. And I became his radio oppo, where he would be doing lots of meetings. Everyone had meetings all the time about the plan and what to do. So he'd be in a meeting and I'd go to Radio 1 and get the scripts down to look at what was played. So we got this, um, and I could then call him and go, right, there's a play here at the farm, there's a play of the Beautiful South, and so on. And Gary had done the deal to get Swade. Swade were the latest hot band to appear and then ride, right? And I did a very good job on getting Ride on the radio. And that impressed Alan McGee, which then went, when he went and signed Oasis, he went, right, you're going to use Gary, Dylan and Karen. So, and so started that, that journey of doing Oasis. Well, Gary was a great tutor to me. So Gary would advise me, help me all the way. And I became aware of our competitors so there were other independents that were on the circuit and we were all like sort of friendly-ish competitors when we bump into each other at Radio 1, which is what you did. You had to ring the show's um, secretary at an exact point in time to get the appointment to then go in and play the records. You really learned that a record had to, don't bore us, get to the chorus. I became very good at editing records. Cut the intro, fade it. Some artists were very agreeable to that. Others didn't like it at all. And this thing about picking singles, and of course the artists would have an opinion, the artists were really too close to the record. So it'd be someone like us, or press agents, or whatever, that hearing it for the first time, finished. To talk about Oasis, there, there was a music industry uh, thing called In The City, and it was in Manchester, and Matt McGee had put Oasis on. So I first saw them there, and then he signed them. Then the first official gig was at the Water Rats in the January of 93, it must have been. Anyway, I was there. And what happened was they had this Columbia 12-inch demo, and they were going to go and record the album. They went, well, let's just go to radio with this and see how we get on. Now, Radio 1 had changed. So I had this um, Oasis 12-inch. And Radio 1 put it on the C list, lowest list. But that was never really expected. And then, of course, we went into the singles, you know, Shape and Make, the Sequel Sonic and all of that. And very quickly, of course, the live thing for them was crucial. They began to get more and more notoriety. And the singles all went on the playlist. But I remember flying up to Glasgow for another one of these 
in the city events or it was a Radio 1 event. But they'd been added to the playlist like that morning, got on the plane, got off, went into their dressing room. They're like, I'm the, the hero. Well, they were on the playlist. Well done, well done, well done, you know. They were very appreciative of me in those early days. And in the later days, they were appreciative of me. There was another funny story that happened. They did a BBC London interview with a lady called Lucy Longhurst, who was a known, respected um, DJ who had new bands on her show in the evening. And she had Oasis in. So you two are brothers then. What would have happened if you had a sister in the back? And then he went, well, she could clean the drums, I suppose. Anyway, they got through this interview, and then we left, and Marcus Russell was there. He was, like, grinning, like, oh, that was funny, wasn't it? And we came out, and Marcus must have taken Liam's Noel somewhere, and Liam said, I was staying in the Columbia Hotel. I said, I'll give you a lift if you want. Now, so Liam got in the car, and I drove him, like, a mile back down the road to his hotel. Liam was so appreciative, right, of everything. He drove it. He 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 led the band. Noel was very quiet, um, you know, polite, and that and quiet. Liam was the leader. He was the one that wanted to meet everybody. He wanted to be everybody's friend, and he wanted it to all to happen. There you have it. You've been listening to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michael. And today's guest is Dylan White, telling you about uh, his career growing up first, uh, wanting to be a musician, and then getting into the good old promotion field. And more stories about that with Oasis and you. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, 
you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the US. You two coming up after this. For the moments that rock my world, really, it was working with you too. We started in 2001 from Beautiful Day, and the brief was to keep them on Radio 1. After Beautiful Day, what other things that happened was some of the singles needed editing. And I said, we have to do a radio edit here. And Bono would round me up and said, do whatever it takes to get us on Radio 1. And I was given permission to edit their music. I was the only person in the world allowed to edit their records. And we'd do it, and I would send it to Paul McGuinness's right-hand lady at the time called Sheila Roach. And uh, it would be passed on to Edge, and Edge would uh, approve it. Apart from the albums, they had they had all this back catalogue, kind of greatest hits it was, these box sets. They did an 80s one and a 90s one. There was a track called Elevation. It was great. And there was one bit, it was actually Bono singing. I had to edit it out. And I thought, I can't believe cutting that bit of his vocal. And I said to um, to him, look, I'm really sorry, but that little pre-verse bit of your vocal is going to have to go. <laughs> Just get us on Radio 1. And the other thing was doing what was known as kids' TV. Um, CD UK was the flyer of a show. First thing was, before they went in to do it, come up with the idea, we'll, we'll get Cat Dealey to go to Dublin and interview the band. So he worked it out that the four of them would hide in Dublin. And Edge was in a pool hall. <laughs> Can't remember where Larry was. And they ended up at their hotel, the Clarence, and um, they found Adam in a hot tub. And then they did this great interview, and that was it, and that sealed the relationship. So the next bit was bring them into the studio. So it was worked out to do that they would come to London, and Bonner said to me, said, what are you making us do? And he had his kids with him, and the kids were, like, all excited. They went, that's why we're here, because your kids are watching this, and they love it. And then another idea came along to do Top of the Pops outdoors outside the BBC TV centre. And uh, they played there. A series of people were allowed in to see them and uh, others were just clamouring at the gates. Further stuff we did. We went to um, their houses in the south of France where um, Bono and Edge, that you could call them semi-detached houses. Oh my God! You would think what time away from the band living next door to one for God's and, sake. Uh, they, they're again. They're very close, and they got this car, an American car, and they sat in the car with Cat, and they had a CD of the album, not yet released, and they went, "Right, Cat, we got to pick the single. We got to pick the single. What do you want? What do you like? What do you like?" And they bung the album on, and she listened to it with them, and Bono drove the car. They did an Astoria show. They did like a small gig. That must have been 2001. And that was like 10 years that I'd been working as a plugger. And I'd gone from starting in 91 to looking after you two 10 years later. When they came out and left around the back, they came out the back, obviously, stage door. 
there were the offices right opposite. It's a small little row with people literally hanging out the windows. And another one on the No Line on the Horizon album that I think came out in a earlier part of the year. Uh, we came up with a great idea then of the BBC building at the top of Regent Street. I think it's called Portland Place, and it was deemed they could play there. And the funny thing is, you stood on this balcony and you could lean over and see down the road. And the um, the crew and the stage people came and yeah, they're a bit low. That's put a bigger stage in. So it was reminded me of, of um, the Beatles at Abbey Road because they built some sort of platform for them to stand on. And here they just raised it. And you two played in the early evening. I must have been about six, seven o'clock. And they, the police closed off um, the top of Regent Street. And, and they played for five, six songs, something like that. Because the big thing was, is Bono going to try and climb up that bloody tower and try to do the King, King Kong thing? But I think the crew had sort of boxed it off, climbing up off that and falling off. So yeah, you want to have been there was... in the early days when they didn't have uh, radio mics, and the roadie had to follow him with a lead, and he was climbing up onto the circle in theatres. It was like, oh my yeah. god, where's he going now? Twentieth anniversary of Live Aid, and they did that in Hyde Park in two thousand and five. It must have been July. They were on early because they had to they had a gig that night somewhere. And they, they were like, I think, the first band on. And then off on the private plane. It was on the All You Can't Leave Behind album. Post turned up for me, opened it up. And it was a card just said, from the desk of Paul McGuinness. And he'd written it, and it said, Dear Dylan, it's fantastic working with you. Thanks, Paul. And I thought, that is class. Definitely, yeah, I agree. But going back to those early days, I mean, Bono, like, it's very much lost in the moment. I mean, if you look at what that total cock-up was at Live Aid, because they only we just got pride on the radio and an audience of 1.4 billion, an opportunity to showcase it on, on a stage like that. And he goes a walk around and pulls a girl out of the crowd. And that story is, is just unbelievable, you know, because he was very close to being sacked. Uh, McGuinness bought a copy of La Parisian. It was how Freddie Mercury and you two stole the show. So it was kind of a, a, a risk that turned into an opportunity. Yeah, they um, in all the interviews, obviously various interviews that I've done with them, that does come up and they talk about that, that at the time they thought they'd blown it and that Honor was in Egypt because he'd gone walkabout and they couldn't do their song. But then, of course, when the press unfolded, unlike it's not instant like it is now, so... The next day, when papers came out, all of a sudden, you know, there's a big picture of him hugging this girl, and it's one that, and it's a moment. I don't know if you know this, but um, obviously, Live Aid was was like you went to Philadelphia, you know, hey. at a certain time. You two were the first band that America saw. It was a stroke of genius how they pulled that one off. Because like Status Quo were the first ones in the UK. You're not going to watch a whole day of Live Aid, but you're definitely going to watch the start of it. Yeah, Bono would. Have... Come back from that with the cat that ate all the cream and go, play your instruments and I'll worry about that. He he always wrote personal things, you know. One of them, it was a, the only reason you want to work with us is because I know Bruce Springsteen. You learn a lot working with bands, you know. Like I was learning my trade when they were learning theirs, right from the very beginning, you know, obviously taking them to every crappy little radio station. You two are attention to detail. 
you know, I mean, I, I can't speak right now because I, I'm not working with them now, but like when it was with Paul McGuinness at the helm, and I think those people were like 24-7, like available, do whatever. But you got to hand it to them with this sphere thing, you know, like they, A, it was built, right, in some unbelievable technical way with all these outside lights going on and the character and the computerizing. I've seen the thing where the little characters smiling or looking up at aeroplanes or whatever, it's clearly live. And uh, I've seen loads of clips, you know, and they're on this stage with like hardly any equipment. There's no like walls of amplifiers or anything. It's just like minimal equipment. And yeah, everyone is somehow immersed in this magical sort of visual thing. There was one that spotted though, one of the early shows, I can't remember the song, but Edge started playing. All of a sudden, the guitar went and he ran off and then came back with another guitar. So he, he ran down his little steps and he ran back up with another one. And you notice the guitar sound went, then he came back again. So, so something had gone wrong with that guitar. I think they've got very clever now with the screens um, and how they use them. But yeah, you two at the Sphere and um, and they, they had to put on more and more shows. Well, they had this song come out, Atomic City, which was about uh, Las Vegas. That's a new recording they've had. And that was the thing when uh, doing Oasis and Oasis were like this new phenomena in um, the UK. So Oasis, like, this is like 93, 94, 95, you know, um, Wonderwall, all the rest of it, right? And they're doing Earl's Court Arena. You two were like, all right, let's go and check these new boys out. And they all turned up at an Oasis gig. And they went, uh, all right, you're not bad. Come and support us in America. And that was quite, for Oasis, they're like, wait, we're going to support you too in America. So, so what course, year was that? Must have been 94, 95. And uh, so they were, of course, put on in daylight in some huge place. like, And they were like suddenly like, oh, dear, we've got a bit of a way to go still. Because um, they were, you know, just standing there playing. The crowd didn't really know their songs, right? Because they hadn't yet broken it in America. But it was you two just going, yeah, you know, you're new boys, you know, you're, you're on fire, come and support us. And you two are very good like that, having new young band support. In America, I saw them there, and Kings of Leon were a support band um, on, well, before they released any records, or hadn't yet, you know, so they put them on, like, new acts. Now, Oasis was very quick, really, from 93... 94, the first album, definitely, maybe. Then when they got on to um, What's the Story, Morning Glory, and they were doing Earl's Call. And then, by, and then of course, 95, you had the, the battle for the number one. And then Nebworth, it was so fast how they they took off. So, but that, I mean, it was early doors when they were, you two invited them to support me in America, very early on. Big thing with Oasis, no question, that the Nebworth thing, doing that as a worldwide broadcast. The BBC were very helpful. Worldwide, of course, well, of course, BBC World Service. 
um, Oasis Live in Nebworth. And it's a great film, Supersonic. Yeah, they were just a, um, a amusing bunch. Although, what happened with you two, in the end, um, the age police came down on me, right? And they went, oh, you're getting older, did they? Well, we want someone young. And I had a young guy working with me, and they got him to do them. <laughs> and then uh, the age police came down on him or something, and it, it, they're done in-house now. But they're done by the record label as opposed to independent people. But I've gone on, and I do. I am an older plugger, right? So I do a lot of older artists. I do a lot of older punks, like uh, TV Smith from the adverts, or the uh-huh. men, Doctors of Madness. Um, I'll do catalogue work. I'll, I'll do a T-Rex catalogue. Um, I love a, an anniversary, a, a box set. I do Mijur. Mijur was always doing 40th anniversary tours. Um, so very interesting to do all that. I did a 40th anniversary two times. But I've also gone back to being a musician in my 60s. And my album is now out there called Unfinished Business. You're your own hustler now, are you? I am, yeah. That's the best way to be, yeah. Just had a three out of four star review in Mojo. Excellent. Congratulations, sir. Seven out of ten star review in Viva La Rock. And I've got a three out of four star review in Mojo. I do gigs. I do open mic nights, like, all the time. And I play. And uh, I'm working on a second album. Uh, I'm not going to rush it. I don't want to rush the second album. Classic mistake. Excellent. Dylan White telling you about his career, starting off uh, wanting to be a musician and then managing a band and doing all the things that all of us do when we're growing up. Uh, I found that was crappy being a musician, so I gave that up. Um, he ended up plugging and he ended up working with bands like Oasis and U2. I love that bit where he says, like, the age police came along and um, uh, they brought it in-house. Well, the baby Bono is a mere 64, so of course only a child. Anyway, you've been listening to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michael. This we're on every week. We load these up usually on a Monday. We'll continue to do so. Uh, Thanks for your support. Keep going. Subscribe. Tell us what you think. And we'll be back next week. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.